With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Double Stint, Sports Car 365, Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese joining me from Chicago, back home after a trip to Sebring to cover the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring. And a real quick aside, that voice you heard introducing us as you have for every edition of this show up to this point, that's my friend Adam Hildebrandt. And I bring this up just because... Uh, if you are a sports fan, specifically here in the U.S., you might have been hearing some about the Oral Roberts Golden Eagles in the NCAA basketball tournament, and Adam is the radio play-by-play guy for the Oral Roberts Golden Eagles, which have uh, now become just the second-ever 15 seed to make it to the Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament. Uh, we go back quite a ways, worked together early on in our careers, and Anyway, really cool that he's had this opportunity, and uh, I just wanted to give him a quick shout-out because he's been a big part of this show as our voiceover guy ever since we got started back in 2016. Anyway, thought those of you who followed college basketball might find that interesting. At any rate, let's get into it because we had a lot to we have a lot to talk about with Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring this past weekend. Quite a race it was, and we'll be recapping that here shortly, and a lot of news to get to on the back end of the show here as well. But why don't we dive into that recap here right off the bat, John. What a wild race. Sebring, it seems like the the sun goes down, and the lights come on, and it's always high drama, and this year was was no exception to that. Somehow, some way, despite an absolutely bonkers race, J.D.C. Miller persevered they pick up an unlikely overall win that I don't think anybody that team included saw coming until we got to the final couple of hours and even then in the final stint Sebastian Bourdais had to deal with some major issues with that car drive through those and held on to win the thing yeah um, the first half of the race was pretty straightforward and I was sort of sitting there thinking okay when are we going to get to some exciting parts and Really, it was the last two hours, again, that didn't disappoint. Um, unbelievable uh, storylines in, mon- in a bunch of categories. I would sort of preface it as saying the, the power of the privateers over the race um, between J.D.C. Miller and WeatherTech um, with the big victories there. But um, speaking on about J.D.C. and DPI, yeah, it was a really unlikely win for this, this team. Um, they were more than a lap down after an earlier incident with the 31 Whelan car. Um, the damage to the, the car, I spoke to Tristan Vautier after the race, and, and Tristan basically said the car was you know, in the wall. He had to do a double think. He didn't even know if it could start back up, and it got it back going, and it was minimal damage only. And um, that was only the first of, of two major issues for that team, um, as you mentioned, Ryan, in the closing stages. On the final restart, um, the rear wing, the rear wing element of the on the on the car um, broke off, and Sebastian Bourdais basically had a had a nurse the car home to the finish while under extreme pressure from Harry Tinknell and Kamui Kobayashi. Um, sure, the the car ended up having a huge straight line advantage because of the wing, um, the wicker bill off the the car, but um, he had a re realign things on in in the car with the setup and 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 making in-car adjustments in in the middle of going through turn one and it sounded like it was a really heroic drive by the frenchman so um unbelievable result and then that really 
um, put a uh, put a huge spotlight on the on the race. I think in the final stages, without a question. And it seemed like throughout the race there were some ebbs and flows, and and just about every team had their moment in the sun at one point or another. Maybe Action Express being the exception, and we'll get to their difficult day in a moment. But the Mazda certainly looked strong for an extended period of time. I thought Jonathan Bomarito was particularly impressive, uh, holding off some extreme pressure. We saw the, the Wayne Taylor car run well. Meyer Shank was there or thereabouts from t- time to time throughout the race. And certainly Ganassi there at the end looked like they were in line to pick up a win. But for the second straight major enduro to kick off this new Cadillac program, something went wrong late in the race. And this time it was apparently a late call to pit lane for Scott Dixon that caught him out. He had a BMW to his inside and uh, the two made contact and that effectively ended things for Ganassi. Yeah, back at Daytona, it was a puncture in the closing stages with Ranger Vanders and uh, closing in or, or challenging very closely with the, the number 10 Wayne Taylor car. And this time, as you said, contact with the number 25 BMW um, ended up um, breaking some, um, some, I think, some parts in the steering. Uh, they lost, I think, four or five laps, ultimately still finished in fifth, believe it or not, because of all these other issues with everybody else in, in the race, um, notably Action Express Racing. But yeah, you have to feel for the Ganassi guys because... Um, they led, uh, I think, the, the most laps in the race. Ranger was on fire, um, a real standout drive, I think, from him in, in throughout the, the running order. He had a bit of a tangle early on with Pipo Durrani. Um, some words were exchanged between the two, and maybe we won't go into it in too much detail, but I think it was more or less a racing incident when you look at that. Um, but um, nonetheless, uh, a real um, disappointment, I think, for the majority of the Cadillac squads other than J.D.C. Miller. Yeah, which, again, would not have been the favorite coming in, and a lot of the talk from that team early in the weekend was basically, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to hang around, we're going to do our best, but we're, we're going to need some good fortune, and they got it and also had, had the speed at the end to, to be able to capitalize on that good fortune. But speaking of misfortune... Let's talk about Action Express. This is a team that, that comes in with high expectations all the time. You look at the driver lineups in both of the cars that they had, and you expect good things. Uh, you mentioned the problems for the 31 car. It was a difficult weekend throughout for the 48 car with uh, several incidents for Jimmy Johnson, a whole tub rebuild effectively, or a new car rebuild around a new tub overnight after a qualifying crash for Jimmy. And no result to show for it. Both cars had multiple problems during the race as well. This is one they're going to have to lick their wounds and move on because it was uh, uh, not not an ideal Sebring, to say the least. A really uncharacteristic weekend for that team. Um, the 31 car was on rails, I would say, through the whole weekend, um, including with people Durrani getting pole. And then, like I mentioned earlier, the incident with Renger um, ultimately derailed that car early on um, after the contact that led to some steering rack damage to the 31. They were rebounding. Um, They got a a lap back under a wave by. I think they were down to only two laps behind and could have maybe played a factor in the outcome of the race had it not been for a second incident that was with the eventual race winning number five JDC Cadillac. But um, yeah, I think the real story was the 48 Ally sponsored Cadillac 
Um, here it was back in for the, the remainder of the endurance races. Um, big hopes there. Um, Jimmy Johnson wrecked it in qualifying, rebuilt around a brand new tub, or actually a spare tub for that matter. I think it was the same tub they used during um, some testing earlier in the year at Sebring. Um, but um, Johnson spun in the opening stint, actually got into the number five car there um, in a bit of an incident, um, to, uh, ultimately brought out the race's first full course caution. And then the big miscue, um, having Sebastian, uh, having Simon Pagano go over the drive time limit of four hours in a six hour period. Um, this was with like four hours to go in the race. And I, quite frankly, I expected more of a team of action express, especially, you know, that they're always on top of things in terms of preparation strategy and, and whatnot. And I know there was some guy named Chad Knaus that was on top <laughs> of the pit box, the calling the strategy and he's a legend in NASCAR, but, I don't know if it was just him that was in charge of this or not, but it was, you know, don't want to point fingers, lay the blame. I know Gary Nelson had a pretty cordial quote saying, you know, we win as one, we lose as one. And I, I think that's probably the best way to, to do it. But it, yeah, you don't make these kind of mistakes, in, especially in an endurance race. And that's one of the principal things. So um, all around, those are very uncharacteristic day for the team and I would say particularly the 48 especially after seeing Kamui um, charge back up to run to finish third on the road in the track on track and then all of a sudden get demoted the last in class because that's the rule that IMSA has if there's um, any kind of drive time violation you know kudos to them for keeping the car running you know and I think any other team would probably park it at that point knowing that where their position would be but um, still uh, a real disappointing effort from that team. Well, I have a question about that, actually, and this kind of shows my ignorance here, and, and I'm going to confess to that up front, but I, I was confused why, when their ultimate place in class was already settled, that that not only they continued to run, I kind of understand why they would want to, but why IMSA would allow them to, because that car could have, theoretically, interfered with another car's race if there had been contact or if something had broken you know they, they blow an engine and drop oil and that takes a car out whatever you know there are ways that that car could could have affected others when it was effectively done already so i i found that and i've seen this before and it's always confused me why the cars in that situation continue do you, is there a good reason why well it's a really good point and i was sort of wondering that too i was wondering would imsa pull the entry but I think ultimately what it comes down to is that the team discovered their own mistake with this drive time. It was Jimmy who I think said it during an NBC sports broadcast interview that they had gone over the time. I don't believe it was IMSA that informed them hmm. during the race. IMSA verified it after the team discovered it. And we've had drive time infractions before happen in the middle of a race and the team themselves don't find out until after the race when IMSA informs them. So I, to Action Express's credit, I think they were being a bit proactive on this. Once they realized they made the mistake, they made it public. Um, other teams wouldn't have done that, and they would have just kept going, hoping that the IMSA wouldn't find out. And that's maybe why they were still let to continue on track. You know, I, I think, you know, we, we've had similar drive time infractions. I think the same thing happened to the Paul Miller team last year. In, in the in the race and so um or the year, be, year before and they ultimately were put to the back of the pack af at the checkered after the checkered flag so um don't really have a definitive answer for your question ryan but i, I think 
you know, I think it was kind of the combination of the two that maybe let them continue. But I, I would agree with you that it would have been a shame if the 48 had an impact on the race in any other way in terms of having contact with another car or, or whatnot. Luckily it didn't, but um, still, yeah, that did look a bit strange from that side of things. Yeah. I think this popped up at, in the pilot challenge race at Petit Le Mans last year too. And it happened much closer to the end of the race, but, and eventually I think the car in question there did, did ultimately just stop running at a certain point. But anyway, ever since then, I've been kind of wondering about why they do it this way. And for the reasons I've laid out, I'd kind of like to see it where if you know, you're going to be last, you know, let's get that car off and not have it potentially affect the outcome. But at any rate, that's kind of secondary to the the overall story here, which was another very entertaining Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring and DPI. That was certainly true in several of the other classes as well. Talk about the fireworks in GT Le Mans. Th- this race went through a bunch of different variations in the final couple of hours. Looked like Corvette was done. All of a sudden, they were back out in front. They had a chance to win. Then it looked like it might be BMW. Ultimately, it's the privateer team, the the Proton Run WeatherTech Racing Porsche team that picks up the win. Really interesting to see how this played out in a whole lot of drama to try and sort through. Yeah, I don't even know where to begin with this <laughs> class. And and there was only five cars. Right. Uh, it was unbelievable. Um, I, I would have sure. to say Corvette was the dominant factor for much of the race, especially the, particularly the three car. Um, the four car had some engine issues early on, went behind the wall. They didn't play a factor. Um, the three car, though, had a couple miscues later in the race, particularly with pit lane. Um, they might have had some mi- communication issues when Nicky Katzberg was behind the wheel. Um, he also had a spin on a restart, I believe, um, that brought them back into the pits and ultimately a lap down. They got their lap back through a wave by and put them back in, in, into contention. Um, then the, the three car of Antonio, that, that three car of Antonio Garcia was in a, in a fierce fight with the 25 BMW of Connor Filippi for the lead in the closing stages of the race. They all, ultimately, the two cars made contact. Filippi had a penalty um, for incident responsibility, and that gave way for Matthew Jaminet to take over the lead and ultimately bring home the another unlikely win from another privateer team. And, um, you know, this you wouldn't really expect at all, especially in a 12-hour race, and especially in a race where you had four factory cars um, you know, mind you, later in the year, we're not going to have the BMWs for the sprint races. And, you know, maybe there will be a chance for the WeatherTech car to, 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 to come through and take a win. I, I think, you know, that's always a possibility, especially with strategy. But here in a 12-hour race, and Cooper McNeil did his minimum time, he was actually quite quick in the car, I'd have to say. Um, I think qualifying only about a second and a half off of the pros' speeds, um, you know, factory drivers off of that time. So, um, really impressive stuff from Cooper over the weekend. Um, I spoke to Christian Reed, the the team boss from Proton, after the race at the airport, and you know he was really proud of what Cooper was able to to do, and um, you know really um, pumped up about racing in America and beating the factory teams. Um, really, uh, I don't know what else there's more to say about it, but it was a real underdog story, um, especially you know with how this team was able to perform, stay on track, um, not make any mistakes, and really capitalize on um, a bit of a a misfortune up front with with less than 10 minutes to go. And Cooper McNeil definitely held up his end of the bargain. You mentioned the pace was was good, probably better than a lot of us expected compared to some top-tier factory GT drivers. 
Um, but I think a big part of it, too, was him being willing to take a back seat to Matthew Jaminet and Matt Campbell, who did a ton of driving, uh, especially in the second half of that race. I mean, Cooper was done fairly early for the day, and that was a big part of their strategy, too. But, you know, you got to give him credit for being willing to to put the team ahead of himself in that. And and again, he he did what he set out to do, did a nice job, kept the car clean, kept him in contention, and that's what it's going to be about all season long, isn't it? You know, in his stints, making sure that they stay on the lead lap and then you catch a, a yellow and you never know what's going to happen. It reminds me of what Core Autosport did in the combined prototype class a couple of years ago with John Bennett and Colin Brown winning races and almost winning the championship. And that was a fun story to watch, and I think this one will be too throughout the year. Exactly. You know, it's just, just going to take some issues from the Corvettes or strategy or whatever, and these guys could end up being uh, winners again in more races this year. Um, Proton is definitely taking this program very seriously and they put a lot of resources into it. So uh, while it's not a factory team, I think it's the closest it can get to being a factory team um, with the level of engineering and, and, and driver talent there with Matthew and Matt um, splitting the driving duties the rest of the year too. So um, really big stuff there for, for, for that whole organization. And um, believe it or not, the next um, points paying GTLM race will be the Salem six hours at a Glen. So we have some time hmm. now before the next race, unfortunately, um, the way the calendar plays out. But um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to these battles uh, the rest of the year. Absolutely. Um, it was a big weekend, of course, for Porsche, not just winning in GTLM, which, by the way, was the fourth straight Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring GTLM win for the, uh, the, the GTE spec 911, but also a 1-2 for Porsche in GT Daytona, which is at least the second straight GT Daytona class win for Porsche, too, because Wright which finished second uh, this year. They won last year. Faf wins in GT Daytona this time around. And uh, they, they, oddly enough, this is a class that's kind of known for its fireworks. And, and it was pretty straightforward in the final couple of hours. More or less, we knew how this one was going to play out. The Porsches looked incredibly strong. And not a huge surprise to see those two teams, given their driver lineups, running up towards the front. Yeah, and it almost looked like it could have been a Porsche 1-2-3 sweep of the podium mm-hmm. um, had it not been for a late race penalty by um, Catherine Leg there in the EBM hardpoint Porsche. But um, yeah, I think really impressive stuff from FAF. Um, there was a penalty given on the on the right um, Porsche um, as well, so they probably would have factored in a little closer to Van Thor at the end um, had it not been for that. So um yeah, I, I I would say there was a couple other cars in GTD that had a chance for victory. The number one Paul Miller Racing Lamborghini. They had gearbox issues um, that were apparently brought on by contact from, uh, I believe, the Lexus of Jack's, Jack Hawksworth at, um, at one point in the race. Um, and that Lexus had issues of its own where they were in contention. Um, before then as well, uh, before getting hit by a prototype. So that was the number 10 uh, Wayne Taylor um, Acura. So I think the the race in GTD would have been a little closer had those issues not happened to those pair of of GTD cars, but it was still a really impressive day for Porsche. Um, By Porsche's count, that was their 75th and 76th class victories in the 69-year history of this race. Hmm. I know know IMSA said it was their 100th win in the race and we're still trying to get official clarification i think there's going to be a meeting this week to, de- to determine <laughs> what the real numbers are but um i i find it a little more believable that it could be their 76th win but still unbelievable 
remarkable record there, um, considering the race has only been in in existence for 69 years. And if this is really their 76th, then that shows how dominant that brand has been in this race. Yeah, and how consistently they've been a part of these championships and and in multiple different classes. Certainly, the the customer side of Porsche racing goes back a long ways, and that um, that has has helped them ring up some of those victories. But uh, another history-making weekend for Porsche at Sebring. LMP2, John, we, we had a battle to, to the end for the win there with PR1 Matheson holding off the Daytona winner's era for the victory. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see much of that because there were so many other battles happening elsewhere and a lot of drama going on in the race. It's one of the downsides of having so many classes, I have to say, uh, when you've got three that are up, up for grabs towards the end, some, someone's going to end up probably uh, getting the short end of the stick, and that was LMP2 here. But uh, an interesting weekend in a lot of respects. Good car count in LMP2. That's been great to see in the first two rounds of the season. This, of course, being the first points-paying round for LMP2. Uh, what, what did you make of what we saw this weekend in that class? And we can throw LMP3 in here as well. Yeah, it was a real dominant effort by PR1 Matheson, um, but they had a, a bit of an early challenge before the start of the race. Um, it was an upright failure on the the car that sent them to the garage and they missed the grid. Uh, Mikkel Jensen diagnosed the problem during warm-up and um, ultimately didn't make it out on time to start the race. So they started from the pit lane and that when you do that, you have to serve a drive-through penalty as well. So by the time the race started, Ben Keating was already a lap down. Um, real, uh, you know, in typical standards, that could be a real deficit, but they worked their way through, um, benefited by from, from some electrical issues from the pole-sitting win Autosport Orica that was probably the only other car that probably could have taken a, a straight-up challenge to the PR1 car. Um, and then on the last caution, the, the Aero Motorsport Orica got a wave by, got back onto the lead lap, and Ryan DL pressured Jensen until the closing stages. Um, unfortunately, like you said, we didn't get to see the battle, but I know they restarted something like 15 seconds apart from each other with a bunch of cars in between, and the, the margin of victory was somewhere over two seconds. So Ryan definitely gave it his all in the closing stages in those final 20 minutes and the, the run to the checkered flag. But, um, yeah, it was a win for PR1. Um, they pick up the points lead, as you say, as this is the first points paying round. And um, moving over to LMP3, it was Core Autosport. And, you know, normally you would say, oh, Core won again, but, they came from behind as well. Um, Two-lap deficit early on um, after some spins and some electrical issues with their Liget JSP320 Nissan. Um, George Kurtz was at the wheel when the, when the majority of the issues happened, and um, they benefited from a couple wave buys to get back on the lead lap, as well as a slow pit stop for the number 74 um, Rolex 24 winning um, Liget from Riley Motorsports. They had issues with their headlights not working uh, when the sun was beginning to set. And they had pretty much dominated the race up until that point. That car ended up finishing third um, behind the sister 91 Riley uh, uh, entry. But, um, yeah, big stuff for core, to, for Colin Brown, George Kurtz, John Bennett to get a win. I think this is, this is the team's fourth Sebring 12 hours victory, um, not counting the, the success Porsche has had with the core run Porsches um, in the past years as well. So um, all in all, uh, pretty good battles there in, in, the, in the two prototype classes as well. Last thing I wanted to touch on from over the weekend, uh, going back to before the race even, was the debut of the new qualifying format, which 
uh, we've we've talked about some in the past. We were kind of waiting to see how it would play out, specifically the GTD format, which has two portions of qualifying now, one with the pro in the car, one with the am in the car, one for points, one for uh, starting position. Now that we've seen it in action once, what do we make of it, and did it accomplish what it uh, set out to accomplish? Yeah, mixed feelings on that. I think it depends who you really talk to. Um, you know, it, it seemed that it was overly complicated and a bit just too complicated for really any purpose. Um, Jack Hawksworth, who won, who was the quickest car outright in qualifying in Q2, which scored points for qualifying points for that number 14 Lexus. Um, he suggested why not combine the two times from the pro and the am and then have an average just like what WEC um, used to do up until this coming season um, with with all of their qualifying sessions. I think that would make a lot more sense because even, you know, as I was writing the qualifying report, I'm thinking like, well, what's more important? Mm-hmm. Is it the poll for the starting position or is it the points? And right now, I think at this point of the year, you would think that poll is probably more important but late when we get to later in the year when every every single point is going to count i think that's going to be a little more important actually when it comes down to things because the qualifying position doesn't really mean a lot in the grand scheme of things so um i think imsa has some work here to to do um i don't know if they can actually make a change in the middle of the season um not saying they will but um maybe we need a couple more races to sort of see it play out and maybe get into a bit of a rhythm I like Jack's suggestion. I think that does make some sense and would help to alleviate some of the added complication of this. I think anything you can do to try and make the sport less complicated is uh, is a good thing. So, you know, hopefully that's something that they take a look at. I'm, again, like you said, I don't know if you can make a change in the middle of the year, but at least it's something to consider. And uh, it definitely was different, that's for sure. And maybe by the end of the year, we'll, it'll be an old hat and it won't be so confusing anymore and, and we won't have to change it. Maybe it's just because it's new. But I guess we'll have to, to see how that plays out. Should also mention there was Michelin Pilot Challenge racing over the weekend, a dramatic race there too with Rebel Rock Racing hanging on, stretching the fuel, Robin Liddell in the final stint, and also dealing with some mechanical issues. That car was spewing smoke uh, at various times in the last 15 minutes, but he held on to get the win there in, in the GS class. Uh, good racing in TCR, too. We also had the debut of the Porsche Carrera Cup North America. Some good racing there. And I should mention the uh, Mazda Global MX-5 Series also had some great races. Race one of the weekend with a three-wide finish across the start-finish line. I think the, the margin of victory was like one one-thousandth of a second, and the more amazing thing is that's only the second closest finish in series history. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, lots of good racing over the weekend at Sebring. You can find out more about all of those things at sportscar365.com. News of the week, and we got a lot of it, John, thanks in part to your work on the ground in Sebring. And we'll start with Corvette Racing. A lot of question marks about what direction... That program is going when we know that GTE cars, like their current C8R, will not be eligible in uh, in IMSA next year. At least that was the thought, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, with the shift to an all-GT3-based GT class structure, GTD Pro coming online next year, the conventional wisdom had been, and what we had been hearing from Corvette previously was, that's the direction they're going to go to with a GT3 Corvette, but... Sounds like that might not be the case. First of all, what did we learn? And second of all, what led to the change in mindset? 
Yeah, well, basically, the, the fact is that Corvette cannot build a GT3 car in time for next year for it to be fully homologated, have the full kit, etc. Um, I spoke to Laura Wantrop-Klauser, who is the sports car racing program manager for GM. Um, she basically outlined that they don't have enough time, given the IMSA's announcement and, and the time frame there to get everything homologated. Um, we know that you know, uh, the homologation cycle for GT3s are pretty tight. Um, it comes in, I think, in August or September by the FIA. So um, it really only does give them a few months had they not been working on it up until now um, to really do it. And she says it's not as simple as just converting the existing car into GT3. It's more of a ground-up process to, to build it in to that specification. And we've heard conflicting reports on this through the months and years of discussion on this. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, quite frankly, I don't know what to believe, but at least this is what I'm being told right now. So um, bottom line is that she's, she's ruled out a GT3 spec car for next year. What they're hoping to do is allow them to run, uh, IMSA to allow them to run the current GTE based car in a modified configuration. Um, think of it as adding some AB, adding an ABS uh, package to the car for the brakes, um, maybe making a couple other changes to sort of make it similar to a GT3, but not a complete outright GT3 car. Um, I would I would think it's kind of a reverse of what BMW has done in the past with the M6 when uh, IMSA gave that car national homologation in the GTLM class prior to the debut of the M8 in um, GTLM. So um, this, press, this, is not, this is not a precedent here. It's been done before in IMSA with allowing cars in that are not fully homologated into their categories. Um, we'll have to wait and see. The, the good news is that BMW supports this uh, uh, proposal from GM. And based on what I know, um, uh, other manufacturers are as well. I think it's more the teams in, that are looking to do GTD Pro, the privateer teams, um, that would perhaps step up with all pro lineups that are sort of against this. But at the end of the day, there's not really any other choice. It, it's kind of like, you know, you let Corvette in or they go elsewhere. And they very well could go elsewhere with those GTE cars. And that's something that Laura talked about in the interview, that being an alternative option perhaps. And we already know that, that they have an expanded program beyond Le Mans in the WEC this year, it was set to be three races. Right now, it looks like one uh, due to schedules and schedule changes and conflicts. However, uh, that, that, that could be a, a potential alternative to, to continue running the car in GTE trim in the future. Do, do you think it's an either-or, or is that something that they are seriously looking at uh, regardless of what happens here in IMSA? Yeah, I don't think it's an either-or. I think it's a, a last-case scenario that if there is no deal made on the IMSA front, that maybe they would go WEC racing in an increased capacity. But honestly, I, I think there will be a compromise made. I, I can't see uh, IMSA losing Corvette Racing, which is the storied team. You know, Even though they changed their car color over the course of the weekend, that made me think, wow, things are really changing with that team. <laughs> but it, it's still a mainstay of u.s sports car racing i i really can't see this not happening um and i think their wec program would still continue either way um if they want to keep going to the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, they need a, a prerequisite of one or two races before that race to help the aco with the bop process the aco is clearly outlined that's one of the prerequisites for them to race in the in the in the the, the 24 hours so um i think next year what you'll see is probably two 
cars on the grid in GTD Pro with whatever modifications needed BOP'd to the GT3 cars, and then maybe those same chassis perhaps going to Le Mans with those modifications taken off, or um, maybe Corvette making two new chassis for, for the Americans and the American races, and then having two dedicated GTE cars. Until you said that the other manufacturers seemed to be on board with this, I have to say I did not like the idea of granting this waiver. Um, it does it, it it complicates things for sure. Yeah, and and that that's not something that that we need at this point. I, I have to say as well that it brings to mind a lot of the the similar discussions that were had around Cadillacs pseudo gt3 program right that raced in what was then pirelli world challenge mm-hmm. and those were cars that were effectively granted a waiver to be sort of gt3 cars without going through the full homologation process without having to have the customer component that uh that they apparently weren't super interested in and i think it's worth noting that the common denominator between these two programs now is the the person in charge laura wantrop clauser led up that cadillac uh, gt program in World Challenge. She's now, as you mentioned, overseeing all of GM sports car racing. And I'm just reading between the lines here. This is not coming from any place of particular knowledge, but it does seem striking that the tenor of the discussion from GM about what they want to do, how feasible GT3 is, seems to have changed, and the delineation point seems to be the change at the helm. So take that for what you will. But it does raise my eyebrows a little bit, right? When when you hear them go from telling us, you know, we're, we can do GT3, GT3 is something we're thinking about, even when making the, the new C8R to this, where GT3 apparently is not feasible. So I, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Maybe yeah, yeah. go it, ahead. It, it, is, it is an interesting sequence of events here. Um, in my first talk with Laura, when she became appointed with, the new position, she was very pro GT3. So I I wouldn't necessarily say it was her appointment, her new role has changed things, but maybe there's been some kind of development in the last few months that has changed GM's tone. Um, The facts are that if you build a GT3 car, you have to sell them. Mm -hmm. And that's, as you pointed out, Ryan, was not done with the Cadillac ATS VR. And we know GM has typically not been a they've not been very proactive with customer sales um you look at the camaro gt4 for instance and there's a handful of cars that have been sold globally um they don't have the support network in europe to offer you know to go against porsche or ferrari or bmw you know in um, lamborghini in terms of gt3 customer support so that's way you can kind of understand why maybe they're on the fence a little bit about this but when it comes down to it you will eventually, they will eventually need to make a GT3 car. I don't think IMSA is going to let them go for years and years and years like this. I think if they, if IMSA lets them do this, this is probably only for a season, you know, recover the costs of developing the C8R GTE and, and whatnot, you know, that point of view. And that takes us into the other side of this conversation as well, because we know GM is certainly sniffing around at the very least, the possibilities of LMDH. You have this, GT Convergence here for a year, with GT3 becoming the only GT platform in the WeatherTech Championship after GT Le Mans goes away at the end of this year. So could we be looking at a situation where for this waiver, this is just GM looking for a way 
to stay involved because, until prototypes effectively become an option when LMDH comes online in 2023. That's not an option next year. Maybe running this car as a waiver is, on a waiver is, and therefore you don't have to incur the expense of developing a GT3 car that you're not super interested in anyway um, just to, to hang around in this series for one more year with LMDH on the horizon. It could be. Um, you know, we know that time is running short, and Gloria even mentioned that on the LMDH discussions on when they need to sort of button things up and what they're going to do, if anything. I think it's looking likely that GM will have an LMDH program. Um, last I heard, it probably should be announced in late April. Um, we don't know what brand it'll be, whether it's going to be Cadillac or Corvette. Um, maybe if things don't materialize on this GTD Pro front or GM decides not to sell, not to go GT3 racing for that matter, perhaps LMDH would become a Corvette racing factory program and they would sort of follow in the footsteps of, you know, Ferrari and Porsche with top level prototype programs instead of having a factory program in the GT ranks. Um, perhaps that could be the best solution of them all, especially with BMW um, looking heavily at LMDH as well. Yeah, let's go into the BMW side of things. They certainly are right there on the GTD Pro side as well with their new M4 GT3 model coming next year. And now as well, like you mentioned, talking about very significant interest in going prototype racing once again with LMDH. Yes, um, I spoke to the new BMW Motorsport director as of April 1st. He still ha actually hasn't been appointed in that position, but he's been overseeing the um, operation and development side of um, BMW's race cars for quite a while. His name's Mike Crack. Um, he was at Sebring this past weekend, and, and I had a good chat with him about everything BMW, and um, a lot of insight gained from that conversation. He basically said that LMDH is very much of interest to BMW. They're looking at it, um, especially given the, the position where they are now with no Formula E program after, at, the, at the end of this current season. Um, DTM moving away from Class 1 regulations and um, no other factory program other than a potential GTD Pro effort. Um, a likely GTD Pro effort with the M4 GT3 next year. Um, BMW is looking for a new Halo program, and what better program would that be with? Would it be for LMDH? He even admitted that, but also at the same token said that costs are a big factor right now for every manufacturer, including BMW. And frankly, they don't have the budget they used to have um, for sports car racing programs or for motorsport programs in general. So they're looking at LMDH. Um, from what, based on our knowledge from speaking to some other sources, BMW along with GM are probably the two most likely manufacturers that are ready to commit to uh, the platform next. Um, they're the next ones in line to, to do it. There's a third manufacturer that we've heard some talks and rumblings about um, that could also be in, in that same kind of time frame for 2023, which could potentially put six manufacturers for LMDH alone alongside the other LMH um, uh, brands that have signed up so far. So this is starting to get really serious in terms of the the numbers and the, the manufacturers committing. But let's be clear again, BMW has not committed yet. GM hasn't committed yet. Um, but uh, Mike from, from BMW um, definitely made it sound like they are, this is something they're working on and um, it potentially could happen. 
really exciting stuff. Hopefully, things do continue to progress there. Going away from LMDH to the other side of the pond and the other new um, prototype, I suppose, uh, uh, set of regulations, Hypercar, got some exciting news from Alpine launching their new car, although there are some some interesting comments coming from a test of the A480. I, I say new car. It's really a grandfathered LMP1 from Rebellion, but new to them and, and with a new name, a new paint scheme, and also a new level of performance because it has had to come down in its performance in order to be there with the new hypercar uh, entries from Toyota and Glickenhaus, and that means the pace relative to the LMP2 cars is going to be a topic of conversation. Now, we know LMP2 has been slowed down accordingly as well, but based on the testing that Alpine has done, and they had one of their LMP2 cars testing as well, it sounds like, um, there are perhaps some concerns about how those two classes are going to play together and just how close their performance windows might end up being. Yeah, that perhaps could have been the first time we've seen an L, you know, the performance of a, the mm-hmm. Le Mans hypercar class alongside LMP2 on the same same track. And um, Philippe Seigneault from from Signatech has has stressed some concerns. He spoke to our Dan Lloyd about it and said that the performance gap is just too close. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, there's a lot of talk right now over BOP um, uh, between the, the the LMH and LMDH, and then now we have maybe a more pressing concern over BOP with the current start of the FIA World Endurance Championship season when these new LMH cars and again the Alpine will be grandfathered in as an LMP1 but still supposed to be having the same performance level as LMH um I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this a lot um let's wait and see but um yeah interesting developments over in Europe as well yeah and I mean it seems like we've been talking about what LMP2 how it was going to fit in ever since hypercar was announced with the performance window being lower than what we saw in LMP1, and that always seems to be the the one little thorn in the side of this that that never has been addressed with a great deal of clarity, and that's going to to need to be fixed here very, very soon. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be curious to see for sure how that all plays out. And and speaking of curious, um, uh, a big setback, to say the least, for Glickenhaus, which had a crash in testing at Vallelunga, what do we know about the incident and what kind of a setback it might be for the relatively small constructor that's trying to go toe-to-toe with the giant that is Toyota? Yeah, we know it came on the second day of their test at Vallelunga. Um, they had completed, I think, two or 300 laps the day before. We don't know who was behind the wheel. Um, I think they had the majority of their drivers there on site. Um, Jim Glickenhouse spoke to our Dan Lloyd about the accident, but out of respect for the driver, didn't want to reveal who it was. So that's where it sort of stands. Um, the car is being rebuilt based on what we know. Um, I think they're in the middle of their the build of the second car as well right now. But there is a planned endurance test, I believe, at Aragon um, scheduled for uh, later on. I believe it's either this week or next week. Not sure how that affects things, but um they're at the same time quite frankly there has been some talk of them potentially skipping the season opener at spa maybe not directly because of the accident but just because of waiting to lock in the homologation of this car so um things are a bit fluid right now at glickenhaus so 
Um, keep attuned to SportsCar 365 um, for any of the latest developments there on that front. And it wouldn't be a double stint podcast without talking about some kind of calendar change. And so our <laughs> final news topic this week is calendar related. A couple from the SRO world, most notably the Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli Round in Japan at Suzuka for the second straight year, has been canceled. This year, it sounds like a makeup round is expected to be scheduled somewhere in the Middle East, but that's a real shame because that event seemed like it was starting to, to gain some traction a little bit uh, the first couple of runnings there, and to, to miss out on it two years in a row certainly doesn't do anything to, to help solidify it on uh, the motorsports landscape, you know? Yeah, as you said, Ryan, it's a shame. Um, you know, it was a growing event for sure. I, I was there for the first two years, and, and you can see the year-on-year increase. And I'm sure 2020 was just going to be even better had there not been COVID. And unfortunately, it's just a case of international travel. And, and Japan, as many parts of Asia, are very, very restrictive in terms of um, uh, uh, traveling right now from foreigners. So it just doesn't make it possible this year. Um, going to the Middle East, I think, makes a lot of sense. Um, I've heard that it's either going to be at Yas Marina or at the Dubai Autodrome, so it'll be in the UAE, um, likely two or three weeks after the race in Kailami. And by my count, that might make it possible for the cars that compete in the Kailami race to be um, sea freighted over to the UAE, mm. because Africa to the Middle East isn't that actually far away um, by sea freight. So let's see... What happens there? Maybe they might have to be air freighted for all we know, but um, just a guess out of from me on that. Um, nonetheless, it looks like we probably will still have five rounds for Intercontinental this year, which will be good, even though it's four rounds for that matter. Sorry, um, mm-hmm. because the bathroom is being canceled. Um, keeping track of all these calendars <laughs> is, is a nightmare. Um, Speaking to some international teams over the weekend, they share the same frustration, um, especially with all the different quarantine rules and travel bans and and whatnot. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, round in the Middle East to close out the intercontinental season. Look for that in mid-December, and um, let's wait and see if there's any other changes for that championship or others. Yes, and we do know there was one for the North American SRO series, SRO America, shifting its VIR date up a week, and we believe that's due to a uh, uh, expected change from IMSA. Yes, so the Detroit IMSA race, which was initially announced for the week before the IndyCar round, so it was going to be split, the event was overall going to be split between two weekends, and um, initially IMSA only had one day to, to do it all in because of the way the Belle Isle event is handled with wanting to keep the island open to the public and to, you know, it's a national, it's a state park. So IndyCar was going to sacrifice and go down to a two-day event and IMSA was going to go down from a two to one day event. Now it appears that they're going to join forces for a three-day weekend, which will be a two-day event for IMSA as, as traditionally run. Um, on the Friday, Saturday. That hasn't been announced yet, but we believe it is coming soon. Um, so SRO has proactively moved its VIR round to the week before, so there will not be a direct clash between the two series, which is great. Um, but at the same time, uh, IMSA moving, it, should IMSA move its Detroit race one week later, that'll provide a direct clash with the Portimao eight-hour WEC race. So um, can't win them all. Um, there's just too many races going on right now and too many championships and series. 
And I think every sanctioning body is doing the best they can. And you can't point fingers at them for doing this or that. Um, they have to do what's best for them right for each series right now. So that's going to cause some complications with uh, people like Ben Keating, who's competing in both both the WEC and an IMSA. But um, it is what it is, I think, at this point. Yeah, and I think the, the VIR change also now has a conflict with the Nürburgring 24, um, yes, which should yeah. affect a handful of SRO America drivers too. So, But, you know, you made the point, and I think it's exactly right. At a certain point, you just got to look after yourself. These are extenuating circumstances, and it's almost impossible to find a free weekend that's not going to have a conflict somewhere. And, and who, who knows? Nürburgring yep. could be changed as well. Um, we're hearing rumors with, the, with Europe sort of going back into lockdown with in some countries um, that the NLS season could be delayed now as well. So, um, yeah, everything is a work in progress, I'd have to say. Took the words right out of my mouth. A couple of other things just to wrap up here. Uh, We got the news in the last week that outstanding sports car driver Marcel Fassler, three-time overall winner at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the 2012 FIA World Endurance Championship champion for Audi Sport Team Yost, and a five-time race winner in DTM as well has called it quits on his racing career. So happy retirement to you. I understand we'll be seeing uh, Marcel in motorsports in some capacity in the future, and uh, we certainly wish him the best. A remarkable career, though, for the Swiss driver. And then some sad news to close out the week. The Queen of the Ring, Sabine Schmitz, who made history time and time again at uh, the Nürburgring, and specifically the 24 hours of the Nürburgring, passed away after a battle with cancer, just 51 years old. We wish uh, the best to her friends and family, and certainly the sports car racing community, the motorsports community at large, has lost an icon, one of the the great names at the Nürburgring in recent times. So uh, rest in peace, Sabine Schmitz. Uh, that is the end of the show this week. No listener questions this time around, so... Be sure to send those in if you've got any for us or your comments. We'd welcome those, too, next time using the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or by going to SportsCar365.com, clicking on the podcast page that uh, houses this podcast, and you can leave a comment in the comment section there. And we'd love to hear from you on a future show. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes if you have some time to help us out with that. That's it for us this week. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stints.